0: In Kings and Chronicles, and it's just been so real and so fresh and so powerful in my life. And so we've been touching on some of these kings and some events uh, in the life of, of uh, Israel. Uh, and so we're going to look at a, at the another one, the, actually the last good king in the Southern Kingdom. His name was Josiah, and he was the great grandson. Of the king that we talked about last week. Which was King Hezekiah. And uh, so anyway. I just wanted to start off by. uh, Telling you. And I hope that you'll think about this. As we're studying this passage today. um, Relationally. I believe. That the biggest. Challenge. Make sure I'm not saying this wrong. I think with most couples, I, I got to wherever Robin was a minute ago. Uh, oh, there, there you are. Uh, she got to see her daughter in Texas while we were laid over there in, in Texas. And I got to spend some time getting to know her daughter and her now son-in-law. And I remember dealing with this with them. And truthfully, they're not, they are special and unique, but not in this regard. Um, this is something that I deal. With. I did dealt with it with Amy and Zach, and I can't remember who else I've married in this crowd. But uh, anyway, I, I, with George and Meredith back there. Uh, but one of the things that I deal with in helping people prepare for marriage is the struggle that we all have when we are entering into relationships the struggle we have trying to make people who we want them to be rather than learning and discovering and accepting who they really are let me say it one more time I probably won't say it the same way but you'll get the idea It is a big challenge in entering into relationships. Any relationship, but obviously I'm speaking about marriage. The challenge of entering into a relationship and I want to make that person who I want them to be. That creates problems when I'm approaching my relationships with people and my focus is on making them who I want them to be, instead of approaching those relationships with a desire to discover and accept who they really are. You you see that? Does that make sense to you? Um, That's true in all our relationships. It is especially true I believe in our relationship with God. We approach God with ideas, beliefs, things we've been taught, things we hope about who we want God to be. This is the God that I want to be there. This is the God I want to To be in relationship with. Versus. Seeking to discover. And accept. And embrace. The God that the Bible. Reveals. That is not. An undertaking for the faint of heart. That. Is a difficult thing to do. And I would suggest that any one of us. In this room. That would say, I am a pursuer of God. I want to know God. I want to love God. I want to be in relationship with God. I want to follow God. If that's in some shape, form, or fashion, if that describes you, then you are on this journey of transitioning from believing in the God that you want to be And learning to to discover and accept the God that the Bible reveals. So as you you ponder that, as you think about that, we're going to look at this passage. I told you that we're going to look at King Josiah. Uh, He's the last good king of the southern kingdom. Um, He's the great-grandson of Hezekiah. I told you that, I think. He lived approximately 100 years after his great-granddaddy, Hezekiah. Uh, Josiah lived about 600 years before Jesus was born. And what's unique about Josiah is that he, his dad was assassinated when he was 8 years old and so he took the throne when he was 8. So he was one of the youngest rulers in all of history. He started his reign as a king When he was eight years old. Uh, I told you that there were only a handful of people. And I'm thinking five. If I'm incorrect you can send me a text and rebuke me. Or correct me later on. Uh, But I think there were five uh, people. Kings in the Bible that that God said. This person loved the Lord. And followed the Lord with all of their heart. I think there were five. I think I'm right on that. Uh, David was one. Asa was one. Jehoshaphat was one. Hezekiah was one. And Josiah was one. That man loves me. That man is seeking to know and follow me. And Josiah, you know, that's high high praise. It's one thing for your mama to say it. uh, Or, you know, one of your kids. But when God says it, that's high praise. Uh, And the Bible says that that Josiah loved and followed the Lord with the same devotion as David, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiah. Um, When Josiah had been king 18 years, he decided to rebuild. He started this huge temple renovation project because the temple had been ignored for generations since his great-granddaddy lived. The temple had been ignored and it had fallen into disrepair, and all the paint was peeling off, and all the wood was rotten, and you know, so it just it was not; a, it was no longer used. It was ignored, and he decided he wanted to create this big, huge temple renovation project. And I'm going to read a little bit of this to you in a minute. But in the process of renovating the temple, the pre the high priest comes and says, "I found a scroll." I found a book. That's how... Now, it wasn't just any scroll. That that, that would be like me saying, I found a book. That's how they wrote books, was these huge scrolls. Um, Some of them so big that it took two men to carry. But they were... If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding uh, uh, at a synagogue or a temple, um, um, they'll they'll bring out sometimes these huge, beautiful scrolls. Uh, Well, the high priest comes to the king and says, I found a scroll, a copy of God's law. Now, I'm not going to get into it with you today because it takes too much time and you can call me or text me and email me and we'll, I can give you some more information. But most of the best Bible scholars that I could find, there's great disagreement, I recognize that, but most of the guys that I like the most, they would all agree that this was Deuteronomy. The, that's the book, that's the, the one of the five mosaic books uh, the Pentateuch, uh, that, that probably the book that the high priest found in the temple renovation was the scroll or the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, they don't, that's, I cannot prove that, they can't, but that's, they're, that's pretty, pretty accepted, okay? Um, uh, and the very fact that it was found is very significant. It's very significant that it was found during a renovation project. And what the writer of 2 Kings is communicating is that for generations, the Word of God had been ignored. It had been overlooked. uh, It had been neglected. It had been forgotten to the point that at some point, it was lost. At least the book of Deuteronomy was lost they didn't know where it was and and tragically they hadn't been looking for it now you think about that that part now whether deuteronomy represented all of the pentateuch at this point or it was just one of the five books but part of god's word that which they had available had been lost and nobody noticed they did this renovation project, and in the process, like if any of you have ever done a renovation project, they knock down a wall, or they move some stuff, and lo and behold, there's this scroll laying there. And it's the book of Deuteronomy, and they bring it to the king, um, and they start reading it to the king. And if you've ever read the book of Deuteronomy, it's a challenging book filled with all kind of information about God's... It's, it's really his final words through Moses to the people of God, About how he wants them to live right before they enter into the promised land. And um, they get to chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a stem winder, And I'm going to read a little bit of it to you right now. uh, Just so you'll know what's going on. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, here's what it says. God says through Moses to the people of God right before they're entering the promised land. He says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and you carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and you'll be blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock. The calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks will all be blessed when you... Your baskets and your kneading troughs will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you go come in and you'll be blessed when you go out. And then he takes another 10 or 12 verses to specifically talk about all the ways that God is going to bless his people if they will seek after him and put him first. So I'm sure Josiah was going, Amen, praise the Lord, this is great. Blessings, blessings, blessings. And then, he get, then the high priest uh, gets to verse 15, and then, he, and then in Deuteronomy 28, And here's what it says. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and you do not carefully follow his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, All these curses will come upon you and they will overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and in the country. Your baskets and your kneading troughs will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and you'll be cursed when you go out. And then it goes on for a number of verses, ten or fifteen verses, totally undoing all the blessings that God had just said to His people. Uh, uh, he talks about all these sicknesses and disasters and problems and attacks, and all these different things will happen. And then he says, "This: the Lord will drive you, and the king you set, the, the, the king that you set over you." to a nation that's unknown to you or to your fathers. You will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. And then he goes on to say, And all these curses will come upon you, and they will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the Lord your God. And you did not observe the commands and decrees that he gave you. They will be a sign and a wonder to you. And to your descendants forever. I want you to notice that, that wording. I find it very significant. That in verse 45 it says. These curses will come upon you and pursue you. It's exactly the same wording that David uses in Psalm twenty twenty three, where he says, "Surely God's goodness and mercy will pursue you all the days of your life." And God through or Moses, no, God through Moses says that when His people stop loving Him, stop following Him, stop obeying Him. God's goodness and mercy stops pursuing them. And that the curses of God begin to pursue. You might think, well, dead gummit, that's sort of uncomfortable. That's not edifying and encouraging. That's a, that's a, that's a difficult word to hear. I believe it's supposed to be. But that's what Hezekiah... Oh, Hezekiah, I'm so sorry. That's what Josiah read uh or had read to him by the high priest and when he heard that buddy it threw him for a loop i'm going to read a little bit of it but it shook him to his core it filled him with horror and with fear and with regret uh and sorrow for what he and his people had done. Let me read to you a little bit of Second of Kings 22. It says, Josiah did what was right in the Lord's eyes, and he walked in the way of David his father and did not turn to the right or the left. He raised money for the temple of God so that it could be repaired, and during the repair work, God's law was discovered and read to Josiah. Josiah, when he heard these words, tore his, his robes in great sorrow and repentance. He had the scriptures then read to God's people and a time of national revival and recommitment occurred. Um, what I didn't read to you, if you skip on down in this chapter, in chapter 22, is that God then comes as a result of Josiah and his people Turning back to God and saying, God, we're sorry. Our ancestors have disobeyed you. We have disobeyed you. We are wrong. You are right. We are wrong. We regret how we have treated you. We regret how we have lived our lives. Would you please forgive us? And here's what the rest of the chapter says. As a result, God forgave his people of their sin And he delayed the outpouring of his wrath and judgment until after the death of King Josiah. God said, because you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard my words. And then I'm going to skip down a little bit. And he says, I've heard you. I've heard your request to forgive you. You begged me to forgive you and to forgive your nation and to forgive your ancestors. I've heard you. And I will spare you and your people. You believed me when I said that this land would be cursed. And would be desolate. You tore your clothes in despair. And you wept before me in repentance. And I have heard you. So I... Now listen. So I will not send the promised disaster till after you have died. You will not see the disaster that I will send on this land. Now, if you read on, what you discover is that God had intended to pour out this disaster on the people of Israel during the reign of Josiah. But because Josiah and the people of God responded in sorrow and regret and repentance and asked God for forgiveness... God said, I will delay what I intended to do to your land now. I'm going to delay it. And if you read the rest of the story, what you discover is it happened 50 years later. Josiah dies, his children, it goes on and on. But 50 years later, that disaster that God had intended to put upon Josiah and the people of God then, he delayed it by 50 years. I'm looking your faces, and I'm thankful that I'm getting the reaction that I want. I'm getting the reaction, actually, that I believe the Lord wants. This is not funny. This is not. You know, I don't see anybody laughing. I don't see anybody giggling. I don't see anybody hopping up and getting coffee. I don't. I don't see. I don't see anybody playing Candy Crush or, or uh, 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 you know, checking their stocks. I, I don't. I, I don't see any of that. And I think that's exactly what God... I think this is, that's how God would have us respond to this. So, what do we do with that information? What do we do with this story in the Bible? What do we do with... How, how, what is a takeaway that I can embrace and cling to and apply to my life from studying about God's dealings with King Josiah... And how Josiah responded to God when God spoke to him. Well, I've got four things. I don't know if I'll get to them. We'll see how we do. Okay? But I'm going to try my best. But what's, what can I do with this information? How does it benefit me? Number one. I believe that it's a... And I, I'm, I, I, Please hear me. I beg you to hear me. Is this not an incredible warning to all of us about how easy it is to gradually ignore and neglect God's Word in our lives until one day it's lost from our lives? I'm not saying that God doesn't love you. I'm not saying if you died you wouldn't go to heaven. That's not my point. But I am telling you, as somebody that has tried to read God's Word and be a student of God's Word for 41 years, I talk to people all the time. And at some point I say, Nancy, tell me about your walk with the Lord. And here's the way it goes Man, when I was in junior high, somebody told me about Jesus and I got saved. And my heart was filled with love for God, and I started living for Him. And somebody gave me a Bible, and I started devouring it. I read it every day, I memorized it, I put sticky notes on my bathroom mirror with scripture on it. I started going to Bible studies, I didn't miss church. I filled my life with the Word of God. How are you doing today? Hmm. You know? It's not the same. I used to read the Bible every day. Now I don't read it. Four or five times a year. I used to memorize scripture. But I'm too busy. I used to go to Bible studies. And they just don't do it for me anymore. I used to go to church faithfully. I just, I don't anymore. I don't know what happened but that which was the treasure of my life, the very Word of God. Now, I'm not even sure where my Bible is. Number two. Does this story not remind us that at the end of the day, when God tells us something will happen, it's going to happen. It doesn't matter how long ago God said it. It doesn't matter matter. How unrealistic it is. It doesn't matter. How impossible it is. It doesn't matter. How politically incorrect it is. It doesn't matter. How offensive it is. Larry do you not realize. That what you're saying. Offends people? Larry do you not realize. That what you're saying. Is politically incorrect. Larry do you not realize. That what you're saying. Is impossible. But the testimony of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is that this phrase, and it occurred just as the Lord said. How many of those of you that read the Bible, even semi-regularly, how many times have you read that phrase? And it occurred just like the Lord said. God told His people In the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. A thousand years before Josiah. If you don't stop worshiping idols. And if you don't stop putting yourselves and your own family first. If you don't start following me and getting to know me. And loving me and living your life for me. There will be a day. When you're, you and your nation will end in disaster and in captivity. And I'm sure for a thousand years, the people of God, just like you and I today, that'll never happen. Never has happened. Since it's never happened before, it won't happen now. And a thousand years later, the Babylonians, 50 years after Josiah died, the Babylonians came in. And they wiped the nation of Israel off the map. They literally swept the dust off the ground where the temple used to be. And put it in bags, history says, and took it away. They, they destroyed the nation. Noah, we're going to have a flood. And it occurred just like the Lord said Abraham, you're going to have a baby at 100 years old. And it occurred in Egypt, just like the Lord said. Joseph, you're going to rule Egypt. And it occurred just like the Lord said. Moses, you're going to go down to Egypt and take the, 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 the slave labor uh, 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 force away from the strongest nation on the planet. And it occurred just like the Lord said. And I could go on and on and on. When God told people this will occur. It occurred like the Lord said. Josiah. I'm going to spare you and your people. Because of how you've responded to me. But there will be a day when your nation is destroyed and it occurred just like the Lord said number 3 if you read 2nd kings 22 and 23 the word that runs through those two chapters the most, is the word wrath. The wrath of God is coming. We don't like the wrath of God. Who would? I don't think God likes the wrath of God. (laughs) Okay, if you just be totally honest. We like the love of God, and the grace of God, and the mercy of God, and the kindness of God, and the tenderness of God, and the forgiveness of God. And those are all in, uh, uh, very, very, very important themes that run through the Bible. But folks, here's the truth. The Bible talks about the wrath of God every bit as much, and every bit as often as the Bible talks about any of the other qualities and traits of God. The Bible says that God is angry with the sinfulness and the wickedness of mankind. Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge and He is angry with the wicked every day. You might think, well, I'm not sure... I like to think about God being angry at the wicked every day. Aren't you? When you read in the newspaper about uh, child sex trafficking, that doesn't anger you? When you read that powerful men uh, abuse women, vulnerable uh, women that are in, in very difficult situations, that doesn't anger you. When you hear about the, the, the evils and the atrocities and the horrors of this world, there's not something in you that wells up and goes, That's not right. That's wrong. That, that doesn't well up in you. Of course it does. Of course it does. Where did you get that? Why do you you feel that way? Why do you care? Why do I care? Because I'm an image bearer. I bear the image of my creator. He, He made me with certain attributes and traits. And one of those is that when I am confronted with true wickedness and evil, something wells up in me and that something is anger God feels that way too here's the difference i know that much of the evil that's going on in the world you probably know about that much too god knows every evil thought word desire an action that has ever been. And it fills him with rage. And the Bible says, as a metaphor, you're with me? As a metaphor, don't get nervous uh, or think, uh, but as a metaphor, the metaphor that the Bible uses the most to describe what I'm talking about is that God, in the presence of God, there is a bowl. It's a metaphor. But there's this bowl. And as evil in this world occurs, that evil affects God with wrath. And that wrath is put in that bowl. And since Adam and Eve sinned against God, and those first drops of God's wrath but were poured or put in that bowl. And then Cain killed Abel and more. And it went on to this very day. God's wrath has been poured into this bowl. And it's filling up. It's filling up. And his wrath is being stored. And in the Bible. And I'm going to read some verses to you. This didn't just I didn't just make this up. I'm going to show you. But the Bible says that this bowl of God's wrath is filling up and there'll be a day when that bowl of God's wrath that is the result of mankind's wickedness and evil will be poured out upon mankind itself. Now, the Bible doesn't just give us some blunt. The Bible it gives us Statement at the, in the book of Revelation that this is true. No, the Bible it gives us m- a, a myriad of glimpses, little, little. Uh, you know what do you call little? You know you have a big earthquake, but then you have little earthquakes beforehand. What do you call those? Tri- tri- what do you call aftershock or tremors or aftershocks? What do you, call, you know you have a big earthquake, but you've got these little uh, tremors and aftershocks before and afterwards. And what what are those? Those are all indicators. That there's a big earthquake that's coming, right? Does does that make sense to you? All these little uh, examples, events that happen in the Bible, they're all tremors that that God is using to try to get our attention and show us that something much more... Significant and powerful and horrible is going to occur. No in the flood. That didn't just happen for the sake of happening. That was God saying there'll be a day when something like that is going to happen, but much bigger. Sodom and Gomorrah. That didn't just happen. That happened because God was saying something like that is going to happen again. If you've read through the, the, uh, 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 the, the Pentateuch and God's dealings with His people in the wilderness and when they would sin, there would be moments. It happened oh, a half a dozen times when they would do enough wrong and God would say, that's enough. And then He would do something in the lives of His people as a nation and a multitude of people would experience disaster that, that's a tremor. That's an indication that something like that is happening. The, the, the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom, the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom, all of these are little indicators, little tremors from God that there'll be a day when something like that is gonna happen, but it is gonna be, it's gonna be like that. But it's not going to be anything like that. Because of its magnitude. Its finality. And its greatness. Now let me just. You might think. Well Larry Ray. You're making all that up. That's not what my Jesus believes. That's not what my Bible teaches. Well proud to know you. Let's see what the Bible says. Let me just read a few of these to you. Okay. Um, um, Let's start in the Old Testament. Psalm 1. The wicked are like chaff, and they will be condemned at the judgment of God. Psalm 2. I'm just... And there's thousands. I'm not, I'm not being bombastic. There are a thousand verses that I could use. I picked a handful. Psalm 2. Submit to God's Son, or He will become angry, and you will be destroyed. For His anger flares up in an instant, But what joy for all who trust in Him. Psalm 9, you have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You've erased their names forever. Your enemies are finished in eternal ruins. They are uprooted and forgotten. Psalm 10, the wicked are too proud to seek God. They think that God is dead and they succeed in all they do but they do not see your punishment. Wicked, he hates all. Psalm 11, the Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked. He hates all who love violence, and he will rain down blazing coals and suffer on the wicked. Psalm 75, God says, At the right time I've, that I have set, I will bring justice against the wicked. For the Lord holds a cup in his hand full of foaming wine and he pours it out. He pours out the wine of judgment and all of the wicked must drink it. The little prophet Nahum uh, says God is a jealous and avenging God. He is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. And you might think, well, Larry, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. The God of the New Testament would never feel like that. The God of the New Testament's not a grumpy God. He's not a mean God. He's a happy, sweet God, right? That's what I've always heard. He's Santa Claus and granddaddy. Papa, he's Papa, okay? He's, is, that, is, that, is that right? I want to encourage you to go back. I dare you, I dare you. Read the parables of Jesus. How does 95% of the parables of Jesus end? They end with the king, the father, the the owner, whoever the, 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 the God symbol is. Not every every one of Jesus' parables, but the overwhelming majority of Jesus', sweet little Jesus boy, the overwhelming majority of Jesus' parables, they end with the owner, the king, or the master ushering in a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day of punishment. A day of uh, uh, well you see my point there. And then Jesus Himself says in John chapter three, you know that chapter where they got John three, sixteen? You know that great verse about God loving everybody, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know what the next verse says? All who believe in the Son, obey the Son, life, and all who will not obey the Son will never see life but God's wrath remains on them the same person that said for God so loved the world says that people that say to God no thank you here's the love of my son i gave my son to die for you would you i'm offering you this as a gift No thank you. It's what my grandson does when 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 my daughter makes him say, say, no thank you. No thank you. Jesus says that when we look at God in the face, when God offers us His wisdom, His holiness, His forgiveness, His grace, and we say no thank you, Jesus says that the wrath of God remains on them. How about the epistles? Paul, Peter, and John. Romans 2 says, Because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul says, We are waiting for God's Son from heaven. Whom He raised from the dead. This Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath of God. Peter, Jesus' best friend, said this in 2 Peter chapter 3. The present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire till the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And then John, the beloved disciple, the the disciple that Jesus uh, uh, had uh, had the closest, tenderest relationship with, the, the apostle of love. Here's what he says in Revelation 19. Jesus will strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of God's furious wrath. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? That's a big question with a lot of answers. But I would just say to you, I would declare to you, I would plead with you, I would beg you that if we do anything with that, we need to hold it. In one hand. Remember how I started today? That's not the God I believe in. That's not the God I believe in. That's not the God that I want to be. I want Him to be different. I want Him to be Pawpaw and St. Nick. I want Him to be sweet little Jesus boy. I don't want Him to be that God. I don't want to be in relationship with that person is that the God you want versus the God that the Bible reveals? So, what do we do with that? One of my spiritual heroes used to say that good news is only good news if first there is bad news. Good news is only good news if. There's bad news. That's the bad news. That the bowl of God's wrath is continually filling up with the wickedness and the evil of mankind. And folks, let me be very clear. I'm not pointing that way. The bowl of God's wrath is not filling up with the evils that y'all are committing. The bowl of God's wrath is not being filled up with the the wickedness of ISIS. The bowl of God's wrath is not being filled up with the wickedness of Washington D.C. The bowl of God's wrath is not being filled up with the people that are bringing drugs and terrible things into our country and into our community. The bowl of God's wrath is not being filled up with all the evils of the world In reality, the bowl of God's wrath is being filled up with my sin. My lies, my lust, my selfishness, my anger, my pride, my fear, my laziness, my honoriness, my uh, uh, impatience. That's what's filling up the bowl of God's wrath. I would suggest that maybe you've got your own uh, dibs in that too, but I'm just declaring that the bowl of God's wrath is being filled up with my sin. And maybe yours as well. But the. More terrible the bad news. That makes the good news. All the more wonderful. And the good news. Of the New Testament. Is that God has provided a way. Where you and I can escape the coming wrath of God. Josiah's faith and faithfulness could not stop the wrath of God from coming. God didn't say, oh, oh my goodness. Josiah, you are so faithful and so wonderful and so loving and so obedient. The wrath of God is done away with. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible suggest that the wrath of God is done away with. That is not in the Bible. And the book of Revelation is the story of that bowl finally getting full. Jesus has already died. Jesus has already risen. But the death of Jesus does not remove the wrath of God. It provides a way of escape. The wrath of God will come upon this world, but the gospel of Jesus Christ declares you and I do not have to be a part of it. We can be rescued and delivered if we put our faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Romans chapter 1 says this, when God's wrath and judgment appear, all who are in Christ will not stand alone before God. And they will not be clothed in sin. Rather, they will stand with Jesus Christ beside them and they will be clothed in the righteousness of God. Our sin will be forgiven and rather than hearing there is no condemned for your wickedness, we will hear there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Well done, my good and precious and perfect servant. The Bible declares that this is a gift. This is a gift that anyone can experience by faith. Well, how much money do I have to get? give to get in on this how many good deeds do I have to do to get in on this how many mission trips do I need to go on to get in on this how many leaves do I have to turn over and how many changes do I have to make in my life to get in on that that seems like a good deal you mean I can escape the wrath of God what do I gotta do to get in on that that's what the rich young said. what do I need to do what must I do to be saved what do I gotta do The Bible declares that what we must do is confess our sin and our need of God. We must acknowledge that we are guilty. We've done wrong. We've missed the mark. We're selfish to our core from the bottom of our stinky feet to the top of our dandruff-filled hair. We are selfish and mean. and And left to ourselves, we will put ourselves first rather than putting others, and more importantly, God first. But if we will call out to God and tell Him we're sorry, and ask Him to forgive us, and put our faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross, the Bible says that we will be forgiven of our sin, and we will be adopted into God's family. This is what Romans 1 says. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God that is at work saving all of those who will believe, both Jews and Gentiles. This gospel declares how God makes us right in His sight. It's accomplished from beginning to end by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a person experiences righteousness. But God shows His anger from heaven against all evil people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I'm not trying to scare or intimidate or bully or manipulate. I'm not. I'm not. But I want you to think if on September 11th, what was it, 2001 or 2000? 2001, what if on September 11th, 2000, I went to Manhattan and stood in right there at ground zero, and I said, guys, in a year, something terrible is going to happen. Avoid this area. What if I had done that? You think anybody, oh, you, and then on September 11th, 2001, you think, oh, that was mean. That was uncalled for. That was bullying. That was manipulative. No. No. People would have said that's the most loving thing that you could do to warn people of the coming disaster that occurred on 9-11-2001. I declared every one of us, That there is coming disaster. Not upon a section of Manhattan. Not upon the state of New York. Not upon the United States. Not upon North America. Not upon the Western Hemisphere. But there is a coming disaster. That the Bible warns about. Where God will one day say. Enough is enough. And he will pour out his wrath upon mankind. For our wickedness, our evil, and our rebellion. And all that are not in Christ will be lost. But the good news is, God won't, it, God is not willing that any should perish. And God makes His all the gift of eternal life. If, If that's something that you... Have never done. That's something you're not sure about. Maybe I've said some things that are a little confusing. In fact, I guarantee you I've said some things today that are a little confusing. If you want to talk about that. You call me. You text me. You email me. You come see me. We can chat about that. Okay. We're going to end. Um, Turk, you and Melody want to come up here and help me? Come on. Y'all come help me. We're going to take the Lord's Supper real quick. One of y'all stand right there. See, you have to earn your keep around here. Hmm. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, we now have peace with God through our faith In the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is is that we used to not have peace with God. We didn't have peace. We were at at odds. Paul says we are at enmity. We are at war. We are in conflict with God. But we now have peace with God. Through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would say, I know that, I feel that, I'm not perfect, I drop the ball, I fall off the curb, I stump my toe, but I remember when I accepted the Son of God as my Savior and I experienced peace with God. By my trusting in what Jesus did for me on the cross. If that's your testimony. If that's your hope. If that's your belief. Then you come and you eat that which represents his body. You drink that which represents his blood. And you give thanks for the unspeakable gift of eternal life that God has given you and given to me. Okay? You come if that's your hope and belief come.